The scripture reading is taken from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all, This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, Before we start, I just have a quick announcement. Um, This week, I met with the school board. Tim Gallagher is the the one who who runs the facilities for the school board. He has promised me, we shook on it, that we are now upstairs permanently. You do, we do not have to dread going downstairs. So, thank the Lord. Yes, indeed. I have been praying a lot. <laughs> so, it really did feel like an answer prayer. So, where are we? Um, you can see that we're in chapter 2 of Mark. We've gone through the first chapter. We've been looking at the life of Christ through the Gospel of Mark, uh, written based on the witness and memories of Peter. Um, Peter named by Jesus the rock on which he's going to found his church. And it reflects who Peter is. Peter was a fisherman, uneducated, illiterate, and the style of Mark is very simple, very direct. Peter doesn't theorize. He doesn't try to interpret. He just reports. I saw Jesus do this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And so it's a great place to see unadorned the story of Christ, an eyewitness to who Christ is and what he did. We've seen Jesus getting baptized, being tempted. We've seen him recruit the first disciples. At this point, he only has four. They're all uh, fishermen. And he has gone up to the north of Israel, to Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he made that his home base. Uh, He goes to actually Peter's home and uses that as a base as he begins to, begins his ministry, begins to teach, begins to heal. We saw last week how he revealed himself as a powerful teacher and healer, teaching with an authority that nobody else had, that none of the teachers of the law had. And his healing was so extraordinary that the crush of people in Capernaum drove him out. He had to escape the crush. Well, here, beginning of chapter 2, he returns. A few days later, uh, Jesus and the disciples went out into the wilderness. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. 
And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So clearly, Capernaum has been um, very much filled with the idea of Jesus, his healing. There's a hubbub, they're waiting. And as soon as he returns, all the crowds come back out and try to reach him. But notice his response, primarily before he healed people. But now, for the first time, it says, and he preached the word to them. First time in the gospel this word preached is used. He is now beginning to share and interpret the word of God to them and explain to them who God is and who they are and what the relationship is. And they are so excited by this that they crowd in to the point that they can't even fit in. They spill out on the streets and still more are coming. Remember, these would have been fishermen, illiterate, uneducated. They wouldn't have had any books. And yet, they are so excited to hear the word of God. What on earth is going on? Why would this be such an issue? You can understand the healing. That would be a draw in those times and places without doctors, without hospitals. But why preaching? Well, if you remember, when we began the Gospel of Mark, we saw the figure of John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness, down by the Jordan River, and people were coming out to listen to him, to be baptized, to, be, to repent and return to God. Why? Because God had not spoken for 300 years. There is a 300-year gap between the last book of the Old Testament, Micah, and Jesus' return. And the people of Israel were desperate. These are unsophisticated peasants. They left their homes, they left their fields and their crops, they left all the work of survival to walk out into the desert and hear John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist points them to Jesus. Why are they so hungry? What is it that would drive peasants, ordinary, unsophisticated people, to do such a thing? Well, Andrew touched on it in his prayer. The restlessness of the human heart. The Bible says that we were created by God to be in relationship with him. We were created to worship him as naturally as eating and breathing. And that relationship was broken. The relationship with our creator was broken, is broken. And so now there's a wound, a God-shaped hole in every human heart. And under every other concern and issue of life, there's a desperate, inconsolable hurt a longing beneath all our dreams, beneath all our plans, our hopes, there is a base note of unease, even dread, because we know that our relationship with the one who made us is broken. What can we do? What shall we do? Well, there's a negative response to be sort of dismissive of the problem. Famously, a German poet, uh, Heinrich Hein, was asked on his deathbed if he thought that God would forgive him. 
And he said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. No problem, right? That's what God does. And that is so poignant, at least it's poignant to me, because it's so very, very nearly true. It is God's nature to forgive. And I personally believe that the worst person in the world could, on their deathbed, repent in Jesus' name and be forgiven. I think God would do it. But there is a presumption that is so very false in that statement. Of course he will. That's God's job. God is not some bored bureaucrat who's filling out, ticking boxes on some docket of acquittal forms. It is not a job for God. There is no mechanical bureaucracy processing looking at this one is good and this one is bad. The only hope that we have, the Christians have, is in God's gracious forgiveness. Gracious means freely given, an act of free love. And it is a terrible act of love and forgiveness because it means Christ on the cross, bloody and broken. And it is that overwhelming personal sacrifice that is at issue in our relationship with God. There is a cost to forgiveness. It is not God's job to forgive. It was Christ's decision to take our place. And that act of love is what melts our hearts and transforms us and makes us children of God. And so to deal with this problem of our broken relationship with God, presumption, an assumption that there's some pro forma way of going about it, is completely false. What do you have to do? Well, think of us this morning. I was thinking about this as I was walking over. It is an absolutely gorgeous day up there. It's beautiful. The sun is shining. And we are in this windowless hall. It's a gym. Not the most conducive of places. What on earth are we doing? We're in a school gym with fluorescent lights on a beautiful Sunday. What on earth would make us do such a thing? Are we completely mad? I don't think so. Each one of us feels and experiences that hunger. We have hungry hearts, as Andrew talked about. Restless hearts, unquiet hearts. And we're looking hungrily for God. We are seeking God. We want him part of our life. We want the wound to be healed. We want to be restored. We want the dread to subside so that we can be joyful and happy. And that's why we're here. We should never take it for granted that God's grace and forgiveness is on offer. In Isaiah, there's uh, the beginning of Isaiah 55. He talks about our relationship with God. And he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, listen that you may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Well, for whatever reason, all of us are in this room 
in response to that. In this particular season of our life, God has made himself known to us. God is speaking to us. God is offering himself and his son and forgiveness and restoration and a healed heart. It's happening right now in everyone. Don't ever take it for granted. Life is hard. The seasons of life change. There'll be different circumstances and places and different people in your life in the future. Don't assume it's always going to be available for you. And establish the relationship now while God is offering himself. Get yourself rooted into this relationship. Transform your heart with this relationship. Bring your family and your children and your friends and your neighbors into this relationship. Because one day it's not going to be available. One day it won't be so easy. We should never ever take it for granted. We should never assume that this is available forever. Some men came, bringing him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the room above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I've always had a hard time picturing this, by the way. Um, you know, this is Peter's family home. His mother-in-law lived there, presumably his family was there, his wife was there. If a group of people burrow through your roof, don't you think he would say something about that? That's a pretty astonishing thing to have happen. Uh, I've seen this portrayed in movies, and, and typically they have, you know, like a courtyard and a sort of a shade roof made of branches, and they sort of pot the branches and they come down through, but in my mind, this would have been a big, solid adobe house with a thick roof to keep the sun away, and Anyway, I can't picture it. But the point is, it was an extraordinary event. Their faith, their desperate faith to get their friend to Jesus meant that they went to extraordinary measures. And while we don't know what Peter thought about it, Jesus was impressed. When Jesus saw their faith, he's talking to the man who burrowed through the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Not you're healed. Your, sons are forgiven. your sins are forgiven. What is Jesus doing there? William Lane, in a, in a commentary I read in this, says, Healing is a gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are the tokens of death at work in a man's life. Sickness, decay, disease, the tokens of the future death that has come into the world. Disease and death are the consequences of the sinful condition of all men. Consequently, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion of the provenance of sin. Jesus' pronouncement of pardon is the recognition that man can be genuinely whole only when the breach occasioned by sin has been healed through God's forgiveness of sins. They wanted a magic healer. They wanted a restorer. 
But as Lane points out, what Jesus is really doing is creating a new kingdom, a new space in the world, a new realm. And as the Lord of life, within that realm, under his authority, there will be no more sickness and death. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And so it is all about the authority of the king, Jesus. Remember, that's how he began his ministry. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. And he was the king. But forgiving sins, that's something that nobody had seen before. And they notice. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does this fellow talk like that? In the Bible, when prophets heal, they heal in the name of the Lord. They kneel in the name of God. Much as we, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. We are praying based on the privileges that we get from knowing Jesus. We pray in his name. We pray to the Father because he is the Son. But here Jesus is saying directly, forgive this man's sins. He is claiming the authority, the power to forgive people. He's actually claiming much more. He's claiming that he is like God. When God reveals himself on Mount Sinai to Moses, and he explains what his name means, he says this, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, and he passed in front of Moses, saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, that's why uh, Henrik Heim was so close. It wasn't God's job to forgive sin, but it is his very nature. And because all sin is against God, he alone has the authority to forgive sin. And so when Jesus forgives directly, Son, your sins are forgiven, he's putting himself in this extraordinary position. He's putting himself on the same plane as God. He is beginning to reveal who he truly is. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man. He is taking up a new title. This, by the way, will build through the Gospel. As he begins to reveal himself, he uses this title, Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, it's... Um, it has multiple resonances. It's used in many different ways. It was used by ordinary people. It's used in the sense of humiliation or suffering or some kind of problem. 
because I'm a son of man, because I'm a son of Adam, because I'm sinful and I live in a sinful world, I'm going to get hurt. You know, what went wrong? Why did that happen to you, Tony? Well, I'm a son of man, you know, and bad stuff happens to us. So it had a sort of local idiomatic meaning. That to be a human being, to be a son of Adam, means bad stuff's going to happen. Humiliation is going to happen. But it also, of course, has a resonance with Jesus and the fact that he is two natures. He is the son of God. He is divine. He is also the son of human beings and has a human nature. But then there is a grander meaning. And this is what Jesus begins to show. If you look in the Old Testament, particularly in Ezekiel and in Daniel, the Son of Man is this extraordinary figure who is going to be sent into the world to save the world. In Daniel, Daniel has a vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God on his throne, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here, at the beginning of Mark, as Jesus begins his ministry, as he begins to reveal himself, he begins to fill out the meaning of this term, the Son of Man. He's claiming it for himself. He's claiming something that Israel already knew. And, and you will see as we go through, he will use this term. Here, where he's talking about his authority to forgive sin, he talks about it when he talks about the cross and the humiliation and the suffering of the cross. He talks about it in reference to saving Israel, to saving us. What he's doing is unpacking, preaching to the people and showing them who he is. Have you ever thought, by the way, why the Bible is so long? Why we have all this stuff in the Old Testament? Why we have all these thousands of years in history and all these prophets and all these revelations and all these miracles? Why this humongous process? Why did God need Israel? Why did God need a people in the world to come to? To understand him. My experience of my own Christian life is I will hear things about God time and time again and I will forget them. And my idea of God, especially when I was a young Christian, was shaped as much by movies and stories that I'd heard and books that I read and comics as it was about what God actually said about himself. One of the reasons that Israel existed was God wanted there to be a holy people in the world, that is, set-apart people who would be able to interpret Jesus, who would have the vocabulary, who would have the understanding of holiness and sin and sacrifice at the temple, who would have the ideas of goodness and righteousness, who would understand repentance, 
so that when Jesus shows, shows up, they would have the mental furniture, the vocabulary, the understanding and framework in which to understand who he is, the Son of Man, and what he represents, to be able to witness that to the world. And the same, by the way, is true of each of us. Here Jesus is revealing himself through Peter's witness. Do you understand him? Do you have the vocabulary in your life? Do you have the mental framework, the memory system, to recognize who he is and what he means? What does it mean to you personally that Jesus goes to the cross? Why would he have to do that? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to confess? What does it mean to be holy or unholy? All these words, all these ideas, and they're rich words and they're complex concepts, everything is necessary to understand who we are. You know, when I was at seminary, the, um, the vision statement of the sem seminary was faith-seeking understanding. We can know Christ, we can put our faith in him, but do we understand our faith? Would you, would I, be able to explain it to somebody else? Could we witness our faith? You know, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples were with Jesus for three years. Peter was with him from the beginning. And they constantly get it wrong. Jesus spent three years hammering it into them. And it was only afterwards that they began to understand with the insight from the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true of each of us. Do you know the story? Can you apply the story of Israel to your own spiritual journey? Do you understand what it means to be lost in the wilderness in disobedience to God? It's all here. And we can only truly receive Christ and understand him and witness him if we prepare ourselves, if we teach each other the stories you know, you heard from Gary what the children are being taught right now. What is that? It is preparation for their faith. It is to make their faith and their relationship with Jesus intelligible. To provide the vocabulary, the ideas, the thoughts necessary. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. What is the source of Jesus' authority? Well, he's God, yeah. He's infinite, he's all-powerful, he knows everything, he lives forever. Yep. He's the Messiah, the Chosen One. Yes. But he's also a son of man. That is, just like us, he has human parents. Just like us, he has a human nature. Just like us, he was tempted. He was subject to weakness, to hunger, to thirst, to being betrayed. The point 
about Jesus is that he wasn't just this distant authority. His true authority is his willingness to take on our sin. The reason that he can forgive our sin is because he came in the world to pay the price of that sin. Not just to tick a box on some bureaucratic form, but to go to the cross and experience the wrath of God on that sin. To take our pain, to take our alienation, to be the solution to our problem and our dread. That's what he was all about. That is his authority in our life. You know, a while ago, I listened to this uh, show on the radio, This American Life. And one of them, they tell these stories about American life. And one of them was about this homeless man on the New York subway system. And this homeless guy is on the, the, um, the platform, and he's walking up the platform, and he's looking intently into people's eyes. And he says to them, you're in. You're out. And the people were watching him work his way up the platform. And they said, the, the one telling the story said, this kind of dread was building in them. Would they be in or would they be out? This random stranger had the power to fill them with dread. Because it's scary to be out. You want to be an insider. You want to be safe. You want to be one of the cool kids. What would you think of someone who was willing to be an outsider so that you could be an insider? That's what Jesus does. Later in Mark, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is filling out the concept of the Son of Man, and he is telling us, I am no distant authority, some unknowable power. I came into this world as a human being to serve you. And not you, the general you, you who hear these words. In Luke he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised. He's explaining who he is and why he's here. He is teaching us what he means, what his life meant. And then most extraordinarily, he says this, John records it. John was the one closest to him and records many extraordinary intimate things that Jesus said. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. That's intimate to the point of gory. You know, the early uh, pagans thought that Christians were cannibals because of stuff like this. What is Jesus saying? That he came to give himself so completely that we get to consume him. 
that the body and the life and the relationship that he brings into the world is ours. Not just in some abstract way, but intimately so that we can smell and taste. He is saying to us, this is how you know that you're mine and I am yours. You come to my table. You eat my body and you drink my blood. And it's a test. Is that the Jesus that you know? Are you like Heinrich Hein, who thinks in gen general sense that God's job is to forgive you no matter what you do? By the way, he might. He's just good enough to do that. Or do you know him so intimately that you come to his table in faith? That when you eat and drink, you feel Christ's love for you in particular. You may not know all the details, but you know that he sacrificed himself for you personally. And that dread, that wound, that hole in the heart has been healed. St. Augustine, uh, one of the great uh, founders of the Christian church, one of the great theologians, said that because God created our hearts, we can find rest in him alone. The only one, the only place that our unquiet hearts can be at rest, without dread, without fear, without pain. Well, that's what this table is this morning. As we go to the table this morning, I want you to think about that. Who is this man who offers himself to you? Why did he do it? And what does it mean in your life? Let's pray.